remain standing. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, take them and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning come to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 22, and we'll read through verse 36. As we read God's Word, we we do so as an act of worship. Let's give attention to it now. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would not set one of his descendants, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Join me now for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to consider these which are Your words, asking that You, by Your Holy Spirit, would illumine our hearts. Let us not go away from here as deaf and dumb hearers, but as true hearers whose hearts are softened. Father, inflame our hearts with love to Christ for all that You've done for us through Him, and we pray in His name. Amen. This morning as we engage with this passage, this is uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And, and you'll remember what happened immediately before this. The, 
uh, Christ baptized His apostles into the Holy Spirit uh, represented by the flaming tongues descending down upon them and the whirling winds. And they uh, immediately began to speak in languages that they did not know. And, and in that moment, um, the gathered nations in Jerusalem were enabled to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. This is some 50 days after the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ It's a day called Pentecost. And here we will hear Peter preach Christ. It's important to recognize he didn't preach, think about this, he didn't preach the resurrection as some historical focal point like George Washington crossing over the Potomac. He preached it as an event intended to have an effect. Peter preached this sermon to convict, to convince, and to convert his hearers. And so we will approach this sermon on the life and resurrection of Christ in the very same way. I think this is important to to reflect on at the very beginning because, because far too many don't you think, treat the resurrection of Christ as a trinket. We take it out and polish it once a year and put it up on a shelf and say, Sunday is coming. And then we forget about it again. A comedian said that his doctor gave him some lotion that he was supposed to apply to a spot on his arm and he was to do that religiously. He said, so I did it once a year in December. And that's how many people are with the resurrection. If that's you, then you haven't yet come to the resurrection of Christ for what it is. The event in all of human history that gives meaning to all of human life. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing you do matters. It must have been an incredible sight when the apostles finally emerged from their place where they had been holed up as though under quarantine to preach the good news in Jerusalem's public square. Luke focused on Peter's message in uh, chapter 2 and verses 14 to 41. And so at this moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, we, think about this now, we observe a redeemed man emerging to preach redemption to the gathered nations. In John's Gospel, we read how Christ beautifully restored Peter on that bank of the shore where He fed him fish and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In Acts chapter 2, we see that restoration. In this moment, He fulfills His role, Peter does, as an under-shepherd feeding the sheep. Having received forgiveness, Peter now aims to distribute forgiveness to others. Perhaps we see how Peter's denial of Christ affected his own heart. 
Because he denied Christ and was now filled with the Spirit, he was able to show the compassion of Christ to other men. Through this sermon, he aims to do three things, as we said. Convict of sin. Convince men of the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And convert them to Christ's Lordship through faith and repentance. Notice with me, first of all, that they were to come to Christ under the conviction of sin. Or in other words, he begins by bringing the thunder. Look with me in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. First, notice how Peter's intention is to convict men of sin. This is not how American evangelicals conduct evangelism today. First, we need to gain trust and establish credibility. Then we need to appeal to the felt needs of the culture. Maybe remind people how Christ can mend their marriages or fix their finances. And finally, after that's done, we can show them how very special they are in God's eyes. And He really wants to have a relationship with them. One wonders how men ever understand their need for Christ as a Savior. If this is the supposed gospel message, Peter begins, however, by preaching sin. He gets right to the point. And nothing requires a man, you and me, to empty ourselves more than dealing with our own sin and dealing with the sins in the lives of other people. If Peter had already been humbled to the dust, that Christ had prepared him for this moment, Notice what he says, and this is the main point in verses 23 and 26. You crucified and killed Jesus. And he's looking out upon these crowds who gathered from many nations and they're beginning to come and, and sort of ambled in and saying, what's going on at this doorstep? And there they hear the Apostle Jesus Christ looking them in the eyes and saying, you killed the Christ. In chapter 3, he states it even more directly. You killed the author of life. Remember, Peter is not necessarily speaking here to men who were present at the crucifixion of Christ. Think about that. He was speaking to the crowds that had gathered, men who had come to the marketplace to, to do their shopping perhaps or to bring their trade goods in and to take their trade goods back to where they had come from. And his first point to them was that they needed to embrace their sin personally. Even if other men had actually driven the nails and set up the cross Everyone within earshot of Peter's voice was responsible for Jesus' death. Peter didn't just seek to convince them that they sinned. Peter sought to convince them that their sin was severe. 
How did he do that? Well, because they crucified and killed Jesus, even though God had worked through him to do mighty works and wonders and signs in their midst. This is like you, you're traveling along a road and you're exceeding the speed limit and you come suddenly over the hill and there's a stop sign and there's a cliff and you've seen there have been signs all along and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and suddenly there's a stop and you miss it and over the cliff you go and you say, but I I didn't know that it was coming up. And the authorities say, but the signs were there all along. You ignored them. And this is what Peter is saying. Peter can say, as you know, you know that this is the Christ. He was exhibited to you publicly through these wonders and works and signs, and you ignored them, and you killed the Christ. Now, this is where you and I must begin, too. You say, well, I wasn't there. I wasn't even there to hear this sermon. But although you weren't physically present at Jesus' crucifixion, you must admit that you are responsible for it. Your sin required His death. Coming to Christ for salvation begins by admitting personal sins and seeking personal forgiveness. How how often would you say that you sin knowingly as these men did? How many times have you looked at all of God's kindnesses to you in the face and yet sinned against them? As you look back over your life, you recognize the many kindnesses that the Lord has done for you. He's he's, um, given you a family, perhaps, that taught you uh, to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, taught you the good news, given you many gracious gifts, but you still gossip, harbor bitterness, and resist yielding to Christ in all things. And not only must you embrace your sin, The sin that required the death of a holy and a harmless man. You must embrace its severity. This is what we are acknowledging this morning. Apparently, a post has been circulating on social media where an artist, I believe, has taken and and, uh, carved or developed a a figure of Christ on the cross showing all of his bleeding wounds and you can go into a room where this image is displayed and there's a single spotlight and it's shrouded in darkness so that you can go in and you can observe what those physical wounds might have looked like. But here's the problem. The physical suffering of Christ was a thimbleful of his real suffering. Do you understand that? Because on the cross of Christ, Jesus suffered the hell that you and I deserved 
This is like we were uh, talking this morning over breakfast about observing, uh, talking to men who maybe had been in the Pacific during World War II, and you go and you see that he's lost an eye, and he's lost an arm, and he's lost a leg, and you say, oh, how terrible those wounds must be. And that man looks at you, and he says to you, but they're nothing in comparison to the wounds that I bear internally from seeing my friends die, and their blood in the water. Brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't describe the physical wounds of Christ to you in more than just a few words because it is the wrath of God that is the massive majority of His suffering. And that's what He suffered for you and for me. That's what my sin deserves. That's what the severity of my sin deserves. Not just the piddly lashes. We come to Christ, therefore, first of all, under the conviction of sin. But secondly, we come to Christ convinced of His resurrection power. And it's this, at this point in His sermon that, that, G, that Peter, having delivered the conviction and the bringing the thunder, now he begins to part the clouds. Peter sought to draw men to Christ by convincing them of His resurrection power. You know, as a faithful father, one of the things that you, you can sometimes struggle with is balancing, balancing stern, sternness with tenderness. And often when we get it wrong, we're either overly stern or overly tender. In other words, there are moments when I need to be stern and strong, and instead I'm tender and I say, okay. Or there are moments where I need to be tender and I'm, I come with the hard hand. Here, Peter, Peter balances it. He, he's come with the hard hand. You killed the Christ. You did it. But now, do you see, he also offers you the tenderness to remind you that to, that conviction of sin is not to crush you. It is to lead you to a place of healing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. How? How? Well, he was raised. Peter is a faithful shepherd here. Delivering both conviction and hope. The men, the men who were convicted over their sin of killing Jesus must be convinced He's not still dead. You didn't defeat the plan of God. <laughs> what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In fact, Peter preached in verse 24 of chapter 2, it was not possible for Him to be held by this death. And I think this is for two reasons. One is the power of God and the other is the providence of God. This, the resurrection of Christ was a testimony to the power of God. Although lawless men physically took Jesus and put Him to death, He was never subject to their treatment. Never ever subject to their treatment. Peter notes He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. All along, this is working out the plan of God for the redemption of His people. And, and even though evil men intended evil by it, all along, the purpose of God was to do good to His people. He was working out His good plan. And this good was realized when, as Peter proclaimed to all of these watching crowds, God raised Him up. 
This point is noted throughout the preaching of the apostles. And in Romans, we see it in many places. In chapter 6, verse 4, Paul wrote that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And in chapter 8, verse 11, that God is He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So when you consider Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you must also think of the power of the living God. Peter gave insight into the manner by which God raised Jesus from the dead. How did he do it? Peter says he loosed the pangs of death. What does that mean? Well, pangs is a reference to birth pains. This is how it's always used in the New Testament. It's a a reference to the pains that a woman feels when she's about to give birth to a child and even leading up to that for many weeks. The resurrection of Christ is described as a birth from death. The God who poured out His wrath upon His only Son upon the cross here reached down to take Him up again. Do you know what this means? When God broke those bands of death that held His Son there, do you know what that means? One phrase, paid in full. The payment that Christ offered in behalf of His people to rescue you from death is accepted. That beach ball that goes around and around as you put your card in the POS system and you're waiting for it to say accepted, that's what this resurrection means. Payment accepted. Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb bearing the sins of His people, willingly offering His life in place of theirs. And in the hour of His death, remember the Father turned His face away, establishing Jesus as the sin substitute. Why? Because His eyes are too pure even to look upon sin. Christ is the sin offering. Now, released from His bonds, God declares payment is in full is made. And this payment, remember, was not, not for sins that Jesus had done. He's not paying for His own sins. He's paying for the sins of His people, His church. In Adam, in Adam, God says, you will surely die. But in Christ, He says to you, you will surely live. This is a testimony to God's power to raise up His Son. It's also a testimony to God's providence. And notice this next part, looking at verse 24, um, that Peter says in his sermon, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And, and so the, one reason it was impossible for Christ to be held by death is because of the power of God. But the other reason that it was impossible is because God had promised this resurrection, and he cannot deny himself. So Peter here, he goes to Psalm 10, and he quotes from Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 16. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So in this psalm, David wrote, he said, my flesh will dwell in hope. That's what David wrote. Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. But although David wrote these words, Peter says they cannot refer to David. Why? Well, maybe at this moment he points. He says, over there. You see that? David's dead. David's buried. There's his tomb. And you know, if we dig that up, what's in there? Bones. His flesh has seen corruption. So, to whom does this promise refer? Brothers, he says, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. David was acting as a prophet. Think of this. Declaring the resurrection of Christ to come in Psalm 16. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death because God promised His resurrection and presided over it. And what God promises to do, He always does. When the apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they almost always followed this by applying that resurrection to God's people. As we go back to Romans 6.4, Paul wrote, think about this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in Romans 8.11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, think about this, to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And here's the wonderful truth of the resurrection. This is why we reflect on the resurrection not just in April, but every single Sunday that we gather. Because the Holy Spirit forms a graft between every single believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that resurrection life now lives in every single believer. Right now, you know His resurrection power. This is not just a promise that is to come at some distant point in the future. It is a promise that is right now for every believer. When you set your faith in Christ, you are joined to Him and His life flows in you. It is the Spirit who revives your dead heart and enables you to embrace Christ. This is what Revelation chapter 20 refers to as the first resurrection. When Christ returns, you will know His resurrection power. When your body is brought up from the grave, renewed and glorified to live with Christ in His kingdom forever. This is our hope. Jesus, Peter 
not only sought to convince these men of the resurrection power of Jesus, but also His ascended majesty. I wonder if this might be, this might be an aspect of, of the life of Christ that we sometimes gloss over. We think about the death. We think about the burial. We think about the resurrection. And oh yeah, He, was, he ascended too. There, there is that part too. But you think maybe as Peter's preaching this sermon, don't you think maybe one or two people maybe in the back of their minds are saying, well, where is he? (laughs) Maybe they're saying, why can't I see him? Bring him out. Peter answered in verse 32 that Christ was exalted at the right hand of God. When Jesus ascended, He wasn't retreating from the fight. He was declaring the fight over and the victory won. And I want you to to think about this just just for a moment with me. Um, Sometimes when we think about the ascension of Christ, we, we put an emphasis upon Jesus as a high priest. In that moment, He was ascending up into the Holy of Holies just as the high priest once a year for Israel would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for Israel's sins. That's what he did. He went up into the, into the Holy of Holies. But as you look at the passage, read with me, uh, beginning in verse 33 of Acts 2. Let's, let's see where Peter places the emphasis. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The emphasis here is not on a priestly work, but on a kingly work. In our ancient creed, sometimes we'll quote the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And we always say, he he died and he was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. and, And what? And he ascended up into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right now, where is he? Sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. For what? Waiting for all of his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, for the effects of his victory and the shockwaves of it to circle the earth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, again quoting from the Psalms, Paul wrote, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he did so as a conquering king. And the picture that we are intended to grasp from the New Testament is just as a Roman general coming back from battle with his wagons arrayed with the spoils of war, and he comes into the city, and what do they begin to do? Well, they begin to toss the the spoils of war into the crowd so the citizens of the kingdom can all take part in them. Well, 
the, the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, are saying when Jesus Christ ascended, what did He do? He distributed the spoils of war, the victory conquest to His people. Jesus' kingdom has been inaugurated. The war has been won. And the sign of that victory, do you know what it is? The sign of that victory is that day by day, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, plucks men out of the kingdom of darkness. That one's mine. That was mine. That was mine. And the devil can do what about it? Nothing. And it's so important that we emphasize the ascended Christ who right now sits upon His kingly throne because He's not just praying for you from that seat, but He is sending something to you. Peter said He has received the Holy Spirit and He distributes the Holy Spirit to His people. These gifts He gives when He sends that Spirit forth from the throne unto His church. Christ is King. Not in waiting, my friends. Yes, we await the consummation of His kingdom. But not His reign. And I know you say, well, I don't see that. Preacher, I don't see that at all. It looks to me, I, I see Satan reigning. Well, sometimes he has a go. But we must understand that anything we see happening around us only serve to fulfill the purposes of God. Just like those wicked men who put Christ to death ultimately accomplished God's purpose of redemption. Christ is King. He sits upon His throne and reigns over His people. And even now, the Scriptures declare His enemies are what? Being made a footstool for His feet. Over and over and over and over, the New Testament quotes that passage. And He gives gifts to His people. In this life, by His Spirit, do you know what He is kind to do? He is kind to give you a foretaste of His coming kingdom. He dispenses by His Spirit love. He dispenses joy. He dispenses peace. He dispenses patience. He dispenses kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So if you lack any of these, love, joy, peace, who wants peace? Patience, kindness. Where do you go for those things? You go to the throne of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, finally, Peter has he's brought the thunder, convicting people of their sins. He has cleared away the clouds to show that Christ is ascended and resurrected. And lastly, it's, it's now time to enjoy the fruits. The people respond 
as he teaches them to come to Christ through repentance and faith. The question that Peter's sermon demands we answer is this, how do I enter the resurrected power and ascended glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do I I become one of those who receives these spoils of war? The answer? By turning to Him in repentance and faith. Convicted of sin and convinced of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, those listening to Peter's sermon had only one question. What must we do? Peter's response, response, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, have you ever been cut to the heart? These men were. Not by any physical means. But the preaching of the Word was like a knife that stabbed them right in the heart and twisted. What an image. That's the effect Peter's brief message had on many in the audience. And they sensed the the weight of his words. They felt guilty. And remember, that's a good thing because godly grief brings us to repentance. As Peter knew firsthand. So if you are with us this morning and you wonder, what, what do I do? How how do I become a partaker in the gifts of this conquering King? I want to know love. I want to know joy. I want to know peace and patience. Maybe even self-control. You know where that comes from? It doesn't come from Washington, D.C. or Beijing. It comes from the true capital of the earth. Heaven itself and the throne of Jesus Christ. And Christ invites you even now to come to Him in repentance and faith. Own your sin. Own His resurrection. Own His ascension. And all of these gifts will be given to you. Christ baptized His apostles with the Holy Spirit so that they might proclaim the Gospel to all nations. And they did. And through Peter, he is calling to you. Your sin required Christ's death. And he freely gave his life to ransom the souls of his people. However, death could not hold him. And God raised him from the dead, declaring to the whole world that death has been defeated. Now, He offers life to you if you confess your sins, you repent of them, and you return to Him, receiving Christ as the risen Lord who rules over all of creation and prays for His people. Will you? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are humbled as we acknowledge that we come before You as a King.
Not one who is awaiting His reign, as some suppose. But Lord, as one who is reigning, You and You alone are the rightful King of all the earth. And it's to You, sitting upon Your holy mountain, Mount Zion, to You that all nations will flow. We praise You, O Lord, that You are the light of the earth. We praise You that the government rests upon Your shoulder. We praise You that You are mighty to save. We praise You that at the whim of Your will, You rescue men from darkness and bring them into light, preserving them and their families according to Your promise. Lord, we pray, please, be gracious to us. Send Your Holy Spirit to us and let us bear the fruits of righteousness. We pray in Your name and for the sake of Your glory. Amen.